As we approach the 4th of July holiday, there is a lot of talk in our society about the subject of freedom. But the fact of the matter is, the people of our country have never been more in bondage. There are more people today enslaved to fear, anxiety, drugs, alcohol, immorality, pornography, materialism, bitterness, anger, than ever before. And that list is not exhaustive. There are many other items that can be added to the list of things to which people in America are enslaved. Sadly, even Christians often fall into some of those same traps and become enslaved. But God has provided us, his people, the opportunity to be free to really live life to its fullest. That's what I want us to consider this morning from Romans chapter 6. So if you are not already there, please turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with or rendered inoperative, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Before we begin to consider these verses in detail, allow me to make a couple of introductory comments about them and about the message this morning. Number one, first of all, the teaching of this passage is for Christians. This is not for everybody in the United States of America or everybody in the world. It is for those who have received Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, then that's what you really need to do because trying to obey the instruction of this passage without Jesus Christ in your life will only result in failure and frustration. And then number two, there are a couple of terms that I'm going to be using frequently this morning 
So it's important that we understand what they mean. Those two words are justification and sanctification. Justification is when God forgives our sin and declares us righteous in His sight. This takes place instantaneously, instantly, when we receive Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus Christ, we are immediately justified by God. Sanctification, on the other hand, is an ongoing process. Sanctification is the process of spiritual growth where we learn to have victory over sin and where we grow in righteous living. That's sanctification. And I'll be using that term a few times this morning because that's what this passage is about. Paul has already described in chapters 1 through 5 how we can be free from the penalty of sin. That problem is solved by justification. And what is justification? Justification is when God forgives our sin and declares us righteous in His sight. Again, I remind you, this takes place instantaneously when we receive Jesus Christ. That's the subject of Romans 1 through 5. Now, in chapters 6 through 8, Paul is describing how we can be free from the power of sin. So this section is all about just sanctification, not justification. Verses 1 through 10 of this sixth chapter are all about what God has done for us to provide for our sanctification. And it's extremely important that we know and understand what those verses are teaching. After all, we cannot act upon spiritual truth that we don't know or don't understand. So one of the key phrases in verses 1 through 10 is the first phrase in verse 6, knowing this. Knowing this. We need to know these things. So I ask you, do you know them? Do you know that if you are a Christian, then you have died to sin? Do you know that you have been placed into Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that you have been spiritually resurrected and that you are a new creation in Christ? Do you know that the old you has been crucified and you will never be that person again for the rest of your life? Do you know that you have been freed from sin? Do you know that you are no longer in a master-slave relationship to your sinful disposition? Beloved, it is so important that we know these truths so we can walk in the fullness of our newness of life. God said through Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Sadly enough, the same thing can be true of today's Christian. We must understand that we are not just remodeled sinners. We are regenerated saints. That's what Paul explains in verses 1 through 10. After laying that foundation, Paul begins to tell us what our responsibilities are in sanctification. He has told us what God has done. That's verses 1 through 10. And now we need to understand what we are supposed to do because we do have a part. Sanctification is like so many of the marvelous works of God. 
He includes human agency in the process and in the result. For example, when God sent Jesus to this earth, he didn't come out of heaven as a full-grown man and just float down to the earth and begin living life as a man. No, God used the human agency of Mary to give birth to the Lord Jesus as a baby because he was truly and fully human. Think about it. God could have chosen to simply bypass any human agency, but he didn't choose to do it that way. In a similar way, when God chose to give us his word, he also chose to use human agency. The Bible is both the product of God and man. The Holy Spirit wrote it, but he wrote it by guiding human authors to record through their personalities the very words of God. So the Bible is both the product of God and man. Again, think about it. God could have chosen to simply bypass any human agency, and he could have just floated the Bible right out of heaven to every one of us, but he didn't choose to do it that way. There is a similar parallel when it comes to the work of God in sanctification. God could have chosen to simply make us robots in the sanctification process, but he chose not to do that. He works with and through our will. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God works in us. God stirs us. God enables us. And then we have a responsibility to work out our salvation, as the verse before that says, Philippians 2.12. So the point is this, beloved. We do have a part in sanctification. The commands here in Romans 6 are not written to the Holy Spirit. They're not written to the Lord. They are written to us. And the reason why I stress this is because I consistently run into Christians who have a very passive view of sanctification. They think that it is somehow unspiritual to recognize their responsibility. They are afraid that to do anything is to do it in the flesh. As a result, their approach is to let go and let God. This has really become an issue in the modern era with the hyper-grace movement where we have so many Christians saying, don't tell me what to do. That just gives a burden to me. It just puts on a guilt trip. Just tell me about grace. Tell me about grace and that will sanctify me. And they think that is the most honoring way or the, 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 the best way to honor God. But without realizing it, rather than honoring God with their approach to the Christian life, they dishonor him because they refuse to take him seriously when he tells us what to do. So again, I'll say it, the commands in Romans 6 are not written to the Holy Spirit. They're not written to the Lord. They are written to us. The second word in verse 11 is the word you. Likewise, you do this. It is our responsibility. And that's what we want to consider this morning. Now, just before we move into this text in detail, let me say this. I believe that this section of Scripture is one of the most important sections for any Christian to understand. So if you are distracted this morning or you're sleepy this morning, I encourage you to do everything you can 
to stay tuned in to what the Holy Spirit says in this text. Notice how he begins in verse 11. After laying the foundation in verses 1 through 10 of what God has done for us in sanctification, verse 11 says this, Likewise, you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our first responsibility spelled out in this passage is to continue considering ourselves dead to sin. This command is a present tense verb in the original, which emphasizes ongoing action. So the first thing we need to do involves our mind. It involves our thinking process. We need to continually remind ourselves that we are dead to sin. Since we have died with Christ, as Paul explained in verses 3 through 6, we are no longer in a master-slave relationship to sin. Beloved, we don't have to sin. When we are tempted, we ought to say to ourselves, and even say it out loud, I don't have to do this. I can say no. I have the power to resist because of what God has done for me by crucifying the old man and because of the Holy Spirit who resides within. That's what we ought to do. That's how we should respond to temptation. And you know, the very fact that Paul says we are to do this indicates that sin is ever present. I mention that because we need to understand that just because we are no longer in a master-slave relationship to sin doesn't mean that sin isn't present, because it is present. It is present always with us, but we don't have to obey it. So we need to continually remind ourselves that we are dead to sin. But that's not all. The last phrase in verse 11 says, we are alive to God. It says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the second thing we are to do. We need to continually remind ourselves that we are new creations in Christ because God has given us new life in Christ. We are now alive to God. We now can respond to Him. We used to be dead in trespasses and sins. When we were the old person, we had a master-slave relationship to our sinful disposition. But we have been released from that relationship, and we have been joined to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are now united to Christ. Do you ever think about that, beloved? We are united to Christ, and we need to continually remind ourselves of this fact. We're joined to him. We are alive to God by virtue of this union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer the old man. We are now a new person in Christ. And whenever our sinful disposition tries to take control, we need to continually remind ourselves of these facts. In his commentary on the book of Romans, Dr. Stuart Briscoe has this helpful illustration. He writes this, and I quote, When as a young teenager I was drafted into the Royal Marines during the Korean War, I came under the control of a particularly imposing 
regimental sergeant major who strode around the barracks, leaving a train of tough men quaking in their boots. I didn't realize how dominant this man had become in my life until the day I was released from the Marines. Clutching my papers in one hand, I was luxuriating in my newfound freedom to the extent of putting the other hand in my pocket, slouching a little, and whistling. Sins so heinous that if they had been observed by the regimental sergeant major, they would have landed me in all kinds of trouble. Then I saw him striding toward me. On an impulse, I sprang into the posture of a Marine until I realized that I had died to him. He and I no longer had a relationship. He was not dead, and neither was I, but as far as his domination of my life was concerned, it was all a matter of history. So I did some reckoning and decided not to yield to his tyranny, and I demonstrated it by refusing to yield my arms to swinging high and my feet to marching as if on parade and my back to ramrod stiffness. Instead, I presented my feet, my hands, and my back to my newfound freedom as a former Marine, and he couldn't do a thing about it, end quote. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We used to be in a master-slave relationship with our sinful disposition, but no longer. We are freed from that relationship. So when sin comes strolling our way, we don't have to jump anymore. We don't have to obey because we are dead to sin and alive to God. So we need to continually remind ourselves of these facts, says verse 11. I think it's significant that the first command we are given here, here in verse 11, is not related to action. It's related to thinking. We are in large measure what we think. Therefore, our thinking must be accurate. Our thinking must be clear. We begin by reminding ourselves, by considering, by reckoning, by thinking properly about our relationship to our sinful disposition and our relationship to God. It starts there, but it can't stop there because our thoughts must be translated into action. So verse 12 says this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Again, this is a present tense verb in the original emphasizing ongoing action. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body like it did before salvation. That's the point. Don't talk the same way you used to talk. Don't think the same way you used to think. Don't act the same way you used to act. And Paul says, emphasizes that sin manifests itself through our bodies. For example, when we sin with our words, we use our tongues or our mouths to sin. When we sin by stealing, we use our hands to sin. If we sin sexually, then we use our sexual organs to sin. When we harbor malicious or evil thoughts, we use our minds to sin. Sin manifests itself through our bodies. So we are commanded here not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Before we were regenerate, before we were joined to Christ, our sinful disposition reigned like a king over our physical bodies. 
That's why verse 6 refers to the body as the body of sin. Before we were Christians, our sinful disposition used our bodies as a vehicle to perform evil deeds. But all that was changed because of our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ, as Paul explains in verses 1 through 10. So we are supposed to continually refuse to allow our sinful disposition to use our body as a vehicle. And there's a note of encouragement in this verse. Notice here in verse 12 that Paul refers to the body as your mortal body. Your mortal body. The body that we now have is mortal, which means it is dying. This fight, and and here's the encouragement. You say, I'm not tracking. Here's the encouragement. This fight against sin won't last forever. Because either the Lord will come back and change our bodies, or we will die and be released from our bodies. The body we have now is a mortal body that will eventually be transformed like the inner man has been transformed. But for now, we have a responsibility to make sure that sin doesn't reign in our bodies. I'm sure you're familiar with Paul's words in the very next chapter, Romans 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul understood how sin works through our bodies. It's no wonder that Paul said in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our bodies. We all want to get a new body. Not so so we can float or fly or that. We want to get a new body because then we will never sin again. But that's not all. Verse 13 says this. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The previous command in verse 12 dealt with the proper use of our entire body. This command deals with the proper use of individual members of our human body. Our sinful disposition wants to use our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our brains, our sexual members in ways that are offensive to God because that's how we used to live before coming to Christ. Verse 19 says that very thing. Paul says in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness unto holiness. You see, we used to use the members of our bodies in ways that are offensive to God, but Paul is telling us here in Romans 6, don't do that any longer. Instead, verse 13 says, we should present ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now remember, Paul is writing these words to Christians. This is not at a call to salvation. He's saying you as a believer, as a child of God, need to make this kind of commitment of your body, yourself, unto holiness. Some people confuse this with making Jesus Lord of their lives. That's a very common phrase within Christianity, making Jesus Lord. But that kind of terminology can be confusing because it implies that someone can receive half of Jesus for salvation. 
That's like saying you can receive Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Messiah. Or you can receive Jesus as King, but not as Savior. That's impossible, because Jesus is who He is, and when we receive Him, He is received as He is. So how do you receive Jesus as Savior, as Lord, King, Messiah? Whatever He is, that's how He's received. But as we grow in the Christian life, we begin to understand the fullness of these things. And once we understand these truths, we are to make, this verse says, we are to make a presentation of ourselves to God as His servant. You see, it is very possible and even probable that a person could become a Christian and not know any of this, not understand any of this. It's very possible for someone to receive Christ, but not understand these theological truths about what God has done for us in salvation. After all, the Christian life is a life of growing. It's a life of learning. We don't know everything at conversion. Not, not at all. We don't have to know everything to become a Christian. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. So what do you need to know to become a Christian? Really, you need to know two things according to that statement by Jesus. You need to know the gift of God and you need to know who Jesus is. That's what you need to know. You need to know that the gift of God is salvation from sin. It is forgiveness of sin. It is eternal life. That's the gift of God. And you need to know who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He is the Lord and the Savior. Those are the things that someone needs to know to become a Christian. But you don't have to know all the great theological truths about regeneration and justification and redemption and reconciliation and propitiation. And you don't have to know all the great theological truths about the hypostatic union and the incarnation. Those are things we learn as we grow. Those are things that thrill us as we grow in our depth of understanding about what the gift of God is and who Jesus is. So my point is this. It's not at all uncommon. And this is probably true in the lives of many of us gathered here. It's not at all uncommon for someone to become a Christian and yet not understand the things that happen to us as Paul describes them here in Romans chapter 6. We don't know all of these great things that God did for us at conversion. But once we do know them, once we do understand these things, then we are to make a commitment to God to be slaves of righteousness. This is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, a verse that I'm sure many of you have memorized. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We are to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, and then we are to li live each day of our lives in accord with that presentation. Now, maybe there's a question rattling around in your mind. Why does the Lord want our bodies? It sort of sounds like strange, you know, description. Give your body to the Lord, the instruments of your body. Why does the Lord want our bodies? Because, according to 1 Corinthians 6, the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he wants to use it for his glory. 
Just as our sinful disposition used our bodies for its purposes prior to salvation, the Lord wants to use our bodies for His glory after salvation. Notice verse 13 again of Romans 6. Paul says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Notice the specificity of that verse. Not only are we to present our bodies to God, verse 13 gets even more specific by saying we should present the individual members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. We are called on to dedicate each individual member of our bodies to God to be used in ways that are pleasing to Him. We are to present our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our brains, our sexual members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now let me ask you, have you done that? If you're a Christian, have you ever, think, think about your entire Christian life. Have you ever said, Lord, I want my eyes to be used for your glory. I want my hands to be used for your glory. I want my ears to be used for your glory. I want my tongue to be an instrument of righteousness. And go down through the list of all all of the members of our body. Have you ever said that kind of thing to the Lord? We are to present each individual part, all the parts of our body to the Lord as slaves of righteousness. This keeps us from embracing a false dichotomy where we say that we've given ourselves to God, so it really doesn't matter what we do in in specifics. It does matter. Because we are not only called upon to give ourselves to God in general, we are called upon to dedicate each individual member of our bodies to God to be used in ways pleasing to Him. Another thought hit me as I was wrestling through, why does Paul say it this way? Why do we need to present each individual member of our body? Why not just say, hey, God, I give myself to you. Take my body and use my body for your glory. Well, here's a possible another reason. Because all of us struggle in different ways. In other words, some people struggle by using their ears the wrong way. They listen to the wrong stuff. Some people struggle by using their tongues the wrong way. They say the wrong things. Some people struggle by using their eyes the wrong way. They look at the wrong things. Some, and you can just go down the list. And it's not the same for all of us. So that's why we are all called upon to present each member of our bodies, each part of our body to God, because that will make sure to cover whatever part we struggle with most. For you, it may be one thing. For me, another thing. But if we commit each individual part of our body to the Lord, it will cover all the bases. It will zero in on that area where we maybe have a struggle. So Paul has spelled out six responsibilities that we have as Christians. Let me just list them in case they all ran together when we went through them. They probably did. Number one, we are to continually remind ourselves that we are dead to sin. We're no longer in a master-slave relationship to our sinful disposition. We don't have to obey it. Number two, We are to continually remind ourselves that we are alive to God by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. We're no longer the old person. We are now a new man in Christ. Number three, we are supposed to continually refuse to allow our sin nature to use our body as a vehicle for sin. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body like it did before salvation. 
Number four, we are not to present the individual members of our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. The previous responsibility dealt with the proper use of our entire body. This deals with the proper use of, our in, of individual members of our human body. Number five, we are, pre, we are to present ourselves to God and our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then number six, go a step further, we should present each individual member of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. We are called on to dedicate each individual member of our bodies to God to be used in ways that are pleasing to Him. Those are our six responsibilities in sanctification. Then Paul adds a fascinating note of explanation. Verse 14. First phrase, he says, for, for, he's going to give us a further explanation or incentive, motivation, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Please notice that this is not a command. Paul is not saying that if we don't do what we have been told to do in verses 11 through 13, then sin will have dominion over us. No, this is not a command. This is a statement of fact. Sin shall not have dominion over you. The reason we should not obey sin is because sin shall not have dominion over us ever again. And therefore, we should now live in accordance with that reality. We have already been released from the penalty of sin by justification. We have already been released from the power of sin in the sense that we are no longer in a master-slave relationship with our sinful disposition. And one day we shall be released from the very presence of sin in glorification. That's what Paul is saying here. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Never again will sin be your master. Now, you may choose to obey it, which is sad when Christians do that. But sin will never be your master. Live in accord with that glorious truth. That's Paul's first note of explanation. Then he adds another one at the end of verse 14. He says, verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. And then he adds this, For you are not under law, but under grace. Why does Paul say that? What does that have to do with the subject? Simply this. The law, and he's, of course he's talking about the Old Testament Mosaic law. The, the Old Testament law demanded obedience, but grace supplies the power to obey. Paul is going to expound on this more in chapters 7 and 8, but for now he just makes the point. Those who try to use the Old Testament law to gain victory over sin to those who try to use the Old Testament law for sanctification, fail to realize that that approach backfires because trying to keep the law actually arouses sin, as Paul will explain in chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. There's something in us that causes us to react to what we're told we can't do. And Paul says that's one of the reasons why using the law for sanctification doesn't work. It arouses sin. You know how this works. I mean, have you ever walked by a park bench or something, uh, you know, a, a wall that has a sign there that says, wet paint, do not touch? What's your first inclination? To reach out and touch it. 
That's, there's just something in us that re- reacts in a rally when we're told what we can't do. There's a reaction. And that's why it's counterproductive to try to use the Old Testament law for sanctification. It arouses sin. But the problem isn't with the law, it's with us. Nevertheless, God's intention is not that we should use the law for sanctification. We're not under the law. As Paul states in chapter 6, verse 14, and chapter 7, verse 4, we're under grace. Grace is able to do what external law cannot do. And that is to give us the power to resist our sinful disposition, as Paul will explain further in chapters 7 and 8. But as we've seen this morning, we have certain responsibilities in light of what God has done for us. We are to continually remind ourselves that we are dead to sin. We are to continually remind ourselves that we are alive to God by virtue of our union with Christ. We are supposed to continually refuse to allow our sinful disposition to use our body as a vehicle for its purposes. Fourthly, we are not to present the individual members of our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Fifthly, we are to present ourselves to God in our bodies as a living sacrifice. And sixthly, we should present the individual members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Now, maybe you never understood these things before. Maybe you never knew what God has done for us to provide for our sanctification and what we're supposed to do in response. But now you do. Now you do know. Now you have heard. Now you and I are responsible to do what Paul and the Holy Spirit exhorts us to do in this passage. And why would we not want to do these things? After all, this is the path to true freedom. This is the way to be free to really live life. And as our nation on this weekend celebrates freedom and independence, it is a sad fact that there are more people in bondage in the United States of America today than have ever been. Ever enslaved to all sorts of things that they cannot get free from in life. This is the path to true freedom. This is the way to be free to really live life. Now, if you're here today without Christ, you need to understand you you cannot live life this way. You don't have the power. You need Christ in your life to enable you to live life this way. So turn to Jesus Christ to find the power, to find the freedom to really live life. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes this morning, I encourage you to think about your own life, the way you live, and are you living a life of freedom? I'm sure that in a crowd this size, there are people here who are enslaved, even Christians, enslaved to anger, enslaved to bitterness, enslaved to lust, enslaved to pornography, enslaved to lying. Whatever it is, you're you're allowing your sinful disposition to use your body, whether it's your mind, your brain, your hands, your ears, your mouth. You're allowing sin to reign, and you don't have to. If you're a child of God, you don't have to let sin reign. You have the power to say no. You are joined to Christ. 
You are in union with Christ. You can say no to sin. You can defeat it by the grace of God. So do you want real freedom? True freedom? Then by God's grace, by the enablement of Christ, carry out these exhortations that are given to us by the Holy Spirit here in Romans chapter 6. And again, I would say, if you're here today without Christ, then what you need to do is to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Turn to Him. He will forgive your sin. He will give you forgiveness. And He will give you the power to live life in freedom. Freedom from things that want to enslave you. Things that maybe do enslave you this very day. Father, as our thoughts, of course, because of the holiday weekend, are on freedom and independence, it certainly is a sad irony to see how many people in our society are enslaved. We know them. They are friends, family members, people all around us, enslaved to drugs, drunkenness, immorality, whatever it may be. Just the list is almost uh, impossible to enumerate because the things are so varied and so many. And sadly, even as your people, sometimes we submit ourselves to be enslaved to those things. But you have shown us this morning in your word the path to freedom, how we as your people can be free to live life fully. Father, I pray for us, those of us who know Christ, those of us who are your people, that we would live lives of freedom. Freedom from the enslaving nature of lust or anger or bitterness or malice or whatever it may be. May we live lives of true freedom so that others around us would see Christ in us. And in closing, Father, I want to pray for anyone here among us who doesn't know Christ, who is still enslaved in bondage to sin, to the enemy. May your Holy Spirit draw that person, man or woman, whoever it is, to come to know Christ so that he or she can begin on the path of freedom. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.